Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 115. It's titled, How to Get Unstuck. And the subtitle is, is How to Tell if the Stock Market is Overvalued. Now, those might seem like very different topics, but actually, there's some connection. And I thought a lot about it because I've been having an email exchange with Brian, and he feels what he says outgunned. He's an engineer. He's working full-time. He has three kids under eight years old, and he started listening to my show to get some clarity such as where should he put his money? How should he invest? He felt like it was a pragmatic approach. And he says what he learned from listening to the show is this investment thing is quite complex with some mega players in the mix and some elements which he has absolutely and fundamentally no control. And he he says he feels like he's reached his place of paralysis. He's afraid to invest his money in the stock market because of recession concerns. And he's afraid to keep it in cash because of the risk of inflation. And he just has an overall lack of trust in just about everything. So he's driven by fear with a heavy dose of skepticism, he says. And that leads him to to feel overwhelmed and stuck. And so he kind of goes through this cycle. So I got to get unstuck. And so he, he starts researching everything and and potentially going in a certain direction. For example, he's looking at real estate, but then he feels like maybe the real estate market in California is overvalued, and it's just, he's stuck. What do you do about that? Before I answer that question, I'm going to go in what might seem a completely different direction. We recently had dinner with some friends who were looking for a new vacuum cleaner. The discussion turned to which were the best brands. I texted my sister to see if anyone could remember the name of the canister vacuum cleaner we had growing up, because I remember that. We had that pretty much my entire growing up years, but I just didn't remember what the brand is. My older sister replied with a picture of the actual machine. It's a compact made by Interstate Engineering Corporation. She still uses it. This vacuum cleaner is over 50 years old. Now, it was made... By, as I mentioned, Interstate Engineering. They began in 1937 making airplane parts. Howard Hughes approached the company in the early 1940s about designing a vacuum cleaner to clean aircraft. He needed something compact that would fit between the airplane seat rows and not lose suction when inhaling fine airplane dust. Interstate designed an all-aluminum model that they nicknamed the pig due to its shape. The motor was made by Black & Decker. And if you go to moneyfortherestofus.net on episode 115, you can see a picture 
of the pig, of the machine that we actually own. After World War II, Interstate turned to the consumer market to sell vacuum cleaners. They used the independent franchise model where individual salespeople went door-to-door selling the machines. In 1962, one of those sales reps sold my mother the C5PB model. This was shortly after she got married. It's a rare three-wheel compact. Before sort of the 1959-61 period, they didn't have a front wheel. They had skids. And after 61, they had two wheels, so four wheels, two in front, two in back. This had three wheels, one wheel in front, two in back. It was turquoise, and it was embossed with a picture of the globe on its side and the words, as new as tomorrow. This model was made in Anaheim, California. I asked my mom if she remembers buying the vacuum cleaner, anything about who sold it to her. She doesn't remember. Most of what happened 50 years ago, if we were alive back then, we don't remember. Different story. Last night, LaPrell and I were driving home. We were just outside Newdale, Idaho, about 25 miles from our farm in Teton Valley when we passed a hitchhiker. I only caught a glimpse of him as we were driving by at 65 miles per hour. He appeared to be 50-ish, clean-shaven, and standing with a large hiker's backpack. I slowed and asked the pro if we should pick him up. She didn't say no, which I took for a yes. I rarely pick up hitchhikers. I've done it way more often in Mexico than in the U.S. But I remember a time that my son and I once stood hitchhiking with their backpacks outside Gardner, Montana. We had just finished a three-day hike through Yellowstone National Park. And I'd wrongly assumed that there would be a taxi or a shuttle service from Gardner that could take us back to where we had left our car. There wasn't. We tried for an hour. There was no way that I could find to get back. So we hitchhiked and stood there for probably 30 minutes. And finally, a guy from Cincinnati stopped and drove us back to our car. He had recognized the Cincinnati Reds jacket my son was wearing and decided he should help. So when I saw this hitchhiker with the backpack, I just he just seemed like he needed some help. And so I was willing to risk, I guess, my personal safety and the safety of LaPrell to go see if he needed some help. And so we turned the car around. We drove past the man with the backpack. He, he looked safe enough. So we turned around and we picked him up and started headed toward Teton Valley. His name is Tim Shea. He says he has been hitchhiking full time for 20 years. He earns money working side jobs, landscaping, construction, working on farms. When he's close to running out of money, he buys a loaf of bread and starts looking for work. But he doesn't buy peanut butter, just bread. He says he is sick of peanut butter. Tim said the last two winters he spent in an abandoned mobile home in Drummond, Idaho. This is a town that's probably 20 minutes, 25 minutes from my house. Town of 16 people, eight households, three families, according to the most recent census. Now, I I assume if he was staying there, the 16 people, now 17, when Tim was there, knew he was there. Tim doesn't have a tent. He just has two sleeping bags. He sleeps in places where he won't be bothered. And he says he travels full time so he can share his Christian faith. I asked him what has changed about hitchhiking in the past 20 years. For me, nothing, he said. 
but there are less people doing it. So less competition. I think there's probably less people willing to pick up hitchhikers, but there's also less hitchhikers who are probably worried often, often about their own safety about being picked up. I said, well, how long does it take you to get a ride? And he said, it depends. It's sometimes five minutes, sometimes an hour. And if no one has stopped in an hour, I start walking. One of the things he said is that when you're in your, in your 20s, there is no better way to figure out what you want to do with your life than by hitchhiking across the country, especially because of the random people you meet and you see what they're doing for a living and how they like it. Now, this was kind of advice from my sons. And my sons have spent time overseas. They've not spent time hitchhiking. I'm not sure I'll share that advice to them. But we dropped him at the gas station in Tetonia, and he planned to stay at the city park and hitchhike to Jackson, Wyoming the next day. 20 years is a long time to be on the road with a backpack. I'm old enough to remember some of what happened 20 years ago. Our two sons were young. Our daughter wasn't born yet. I was just starting my career in investing. 20 years, two decades ago, Tim Duncan who just announced his retirement from the NBA, began playing professional basketball with the San Antonio Spurs. Two decades ago, Satoshi Tahiri created the Pokemon video game for the Nintendo Game Boy, in which humans catch and train fictional creatures called Pokemon. Two decades later, just in the last week, humans are running around with their iPhones catching fictional Pokemon creatures based on GPS coordinates. For two decades, my friend Michael has lived in a high-security prison in Alabama serving a life without parole sentence. I've mentioned Mike before. I've gotten, or Michael before, I've gotten an email, or a, not an email, a letter from him recently, and it's been a tough summer. Came in second in the annual Scrabble tournament, had wanted to get first because he could get a new Scrabble board, and his, his, his Scrabble board is wearing out, and he's having to re- Ink, the letters, came in second. Says it's a tough environment because it's been extremely hot in Alabama. They get one cooler of ice for 120 men in his section of the prison. And some of the men are taking more than their fair share because they want to keep their things cool. And the ice runs out and there's contention because some people aren't getting ice and they're having to drink warm water and Michael says he keeps his mouth shut, but he also gets up early so he can be 10th in line and get some ice. Been there over two decades. And for two decades, Tim Shea has crisscrossed the country hitchhiking, mostly sleeping on the ground. Now, our vacuum cleaner is over 50 years old, and we usually don't contemplate 50-year blocks of time. And we usually don't contemplate 20-year blocks of time. We just don't remember much of what happened decades ago. On the other hand, we do a really good job of looking ahead six months to a year, anticipating what we will be doing. LaPro and I are planning to go to Mexico this winter and, and spend several months sort of doing the Airbnb in Mexico. That's what we're anticipating, we're looking forward to. That's about as far as I have planned out. Now, this, this six months to a year window, that's a temporal perspective that is much more manageable. And the trick is we have to constantly answer and decide, make decisions and choices uh, 
in the next year that will impact us 20 or 50 years from now. These are decisions about our finances, our priorities, our time, whether we should exercise or not. I hate to exercise, but I do it anyway because I want to be mobile 25 years from now. Whether we wear sunscreen or not, I don't want to get skin cancer. These are the decisions that we make on a daily basis in that temporal window of six months to a year that we can manage, and that will drive our 20-year blocks of time and our 50-year blocks of time. Tim's decision is to backpack day in and day out. I woke up in the middle of the night last night, and I, I looked down at the Teton Park, which is eight, eight, eight miles away from here. It was dark, so I couldn't see the park. But I looked toward his direction, imagined him sleeping on the ground, and thinking he's done that for most of the last 20 years. One of my favorite movies is Dead Poet Society. In the film, Robin Williams plays the character of John Keating, a literature teacher at a private boarding school, and he tries to get his students to broaden their temporal perspective, to stop focusing on the short term, but to just expand it out. He walks them down the school hall and has them look into the faces of former student-athletes whose team photographs sit next to the school trophies. Keating says, They're not different, that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones just like you, invincible just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives, even one iota of what they were capable. Because, you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. Later, Keating quotes Walt Whitman's poem, O Me, O Life, in which the poet questions our purpose. What was his answer? Quote, that you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on and you will contribute a verse. To get unstuck, we have to broaden our temporal perspective at times to consider what are the long-term consequences of the decisions that we're making today. Not to invest, the decision not to invest because we're, we're afraid or overwhelmed is not a decision that we can maintain for a long period of time. We have to invest. And one of the things we need to realize is no investment is safe. If there's risk of capital loss, or if there isn't the risk of capital loss, then there is the loss due to inflation. And Brian recognizes that. What I found amazing about his email is he, I could essentially pasted it into the sales letter for the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, where I talk about what the hub is for, what the problem it tries to solve, the solution, etc. And this, this feeling of overwhelm, this feeling of stuck, That we understand investing, we're we're studying all these things, but we just don't know what to do. So one, you have to realize that no investment is safe. Two, you have to understand what drives returns for the market. Every investment has its flaws. Every investment has its opportunity. And we have to understand sort of what drives the investment. What are the conditions? And and we're going to use that and we're going to give an example for the U.S. stock market. So those are the things that we're trying to understand. But investment is is not safe. So at the end of the day, we have to set a plan. To get unstuck, set a plan. What is the first step? What is the second step? Just set the plan. 
Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to investing, once we've set that long-term plan, then we do need to stay up to date, understand what's going on, listen to podcasts, perhaps join the Money for the Rest of Us Hub and listen to the weekly Premium Plus episode and listen to the investment conditions report and read it to figure out what's going on so you're not investing blindly. And then we have to get our questions answered. We have to continue learning. every t- When we learn something, it'll raise other questions, and that will help us to revise our plan. But we can't just continue to, to, to just look in all different directions and never make a decision to act today. In episode five of Money for the Rest of Us, I discussed the building blocks that drive stock returns. One of those was the dividend yield, the second was earnings growth, and the third was the change in valuations. And today we're going to focus on that third, the valuations, particularly of the U.S. stock market, because that's an example of the conditions that will drive returns. So as part of our long-term plan, how much should we have in U.S. stocks given where they are today? Greg, who's a member of the Money for the Rest of Us, of Us Hub, sent me an article that was written. It was on MarketWatch. It was written by Mark Holbert. It was titled, What 
the single best stock market predictor is saying now. And this stock market predictor was the household equity percentage. And in other words, what percent do households in the U.S. have invested in the stock market today? And then it then this chart will go 10 years from now and or it goes back 10 years. So what what did households have invested the percentage of their assets in the stock market 10 years to, from ago? And what was the return on stocks in the most recent 10-year period? And there's a very tight connection. And so the higher the percentage in the stock market, the lower the return. Now, I want to send you that chart. If you're a member of my insider's guide, you will have gotten in the link because I send out the show notes and all. I've sent you a link to a chart pack of eight valuation charts for the U.S. stock market. And we're going to talk about some of these different ways to value the stock market. But one of those charts is this looking at the financial, the, the amount of households have invested in stocks and what the return has been. And, I'll talk, and if you're not a member of my insider's guide, you can get that by either going to moneyfortherestofus.net and on the homepage, sign up, and you'll get it sent to you free. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word CHARTS, C-H-A-R-T-S, CHARTS, to the number 44222, and you'll text that word, and then you'll reply with your email address, and you'll immediately get this chart pack. Because it'll be helpful to look at this perhaps later or now if you're not driving or exercising while you listen to the show. But that's how you get it. The way, these, all these charts are from Ned Davis Research, which is my data provider. I don't have permission to share them publicly, so I can't put the link on my website. But I got permission to share them to the members of the Insider's Guide, and, and so that's how you get it. So text the word charts to the number 44222 or go to money for the rest of us.net, and that will also sign you up for the insider's guide so you can get the future content I send out. Now, this chart, household equity percentage versus subsequent rolling 10-year return. The higher households have had, the more the percentage they've had in stocks, the lower the return. So, for example, in 1998, the, the average household, this is during the internet bubble, had 60, about 61% of their household assets, financial assets, in stocks. And the return over the next 10 years for the S&P 500 was negative 3% annualized, or, or approximately negative 3%. Because you look at this chart, you kind of have to eye it as you look at the chart. This chart goes back to 1950. This correlates, the, the connection between these two Figures the percent in equity and the ten-year total return is is zero point nine three. So that's the correlation coefficient. If something has a correlation coefficient of one point zero, it's perfectly correlated. We're at zero point nine three, and that's why Mark Halbert says it's the most important relationship. Except it didn't hold as well the most recent ten-year period. In 2006, so that was 10 years ago, investors had, looks like, about 55% in U.S. stocks, and the return over the next 10 years should have been 1% annualized. 
it was actually about, it was 6.9% annualized. And so here's the thing. You can't just look at one measure. What I take away from this chart is that right now, in investors have about 50% of their investments in stock. That would suggest if these correlations hold that the, re- the return for U.S. stocks over the next 10 years will be about 4%. Will it be exactly 4%? No. It was 6.9% over the past 10 years, and that includes the Great Recession. As I'm recording this episode, I just got noticed that the Dow hit a record. The U.S. S&P 500 index just hit a record. And, and, and so the decision not to invest after the Great Recession was not a good decision. I know people that still haven't gone back into the stock market. We have to certainly understand the conditions and the valuations. But after the last recession, valuations were cheap. It was a time to own stocks, and you got rewarded for it. Now the conditions for U.S. stock market, it's overvalued. Does that mean you, should never, you shouldn't own any U.S. stocks? No, it means your returns are going to be lower, perhaps around 4% annualized. It, it depends, though. Over the next years, it's going to depend on the dividend yield, which is about 2%. So, I mean, you kind of lock in a 2% return with the dividend yield. It's going to depend if whether companies are able to grow their earnings and at what level they grow their earnings. And it's going to depend on what investors are willing to pay for those stocks. Right now, they're paying a premium. And the question is, will they continue to do so? Another chart in this package is household equity assets as a percent of disposable personal income. So after you pay your taxes, how much income do you have left and what percent do investors have invested in stocks? This is bearish. So when when investors have less than 89% of their equity, their equity assets as a percent of disposable income is 89% or less, the U.S. stock market has gained 12.6% per year. When it's above 102%, it's actually been flat. We're at 130, about 132% right now. And so that would suggest, again, that the U.S. stock market is overvalued and our return expectations should be lower. Another chart is looking at, you can look at the stock market capitalization as a percent of the overall size of the economy, nominal GDP. We are at an overvalued level. We take a look at that chart. We can look at stock market valuations relative to earnings. My, this is the, the price-to-earnings ratio. One of my favorite ways to measure this, instead of looking at aggregate earnings, is to look at what's known as the median price-to-earnings ratio. Because one of the challenges with, this, with earnings or P-E ratios is because companies are always they're, they're taking one-time charge-offs and things of that sort that can distort things. And so by looking at the median, we're looking at the middle company. The middle company in the SP 500, what has its price-to-earnings ratio been over time? And it's been over the 52 years for this chart. And again, you get the packet. You can look at it. The median PE is 16.9. Currently, we're at 22.9. So we're in the overvalued level. We're not as overvalued as we were at the top of the, the internet bubble, there the median P.E. was well over 30. We can look at 
price-to-earnings ratio over a longer period of time. So the median P.E. was based on the most recent 12-month earnings. We can look at the price-to-earnings ratio based on earnings over the previous 10 years and adjust those earnings based on inflation. This is sometimes called the Schiller P.E. or the the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio. Right now, as of the end of May 2016, that number was 26.1. And the average has been around 16. Going back to this like this chart, this chart actually goes back to 18, looks like, like 1870. It's a very long period of time, and it's based on data that Robert Schiller put together as part of the, the, the Yale School of Management. And this goes back to the 1870s. So the average has been around 16. We're at 26.1. When this cyclically adjusted PE has been above 16, the stock market has returned 0.69%. That's on an inflation-adjusted basis. So that's a real return. When it's been below 13.5, the real return has been 4% annualized. So another data point suggesting that the U.S. stock market is overvalued And not that you shouldn't be invested in U.S. stocks, but that you should have other portfolio drivers in your portfolio because the returns are going to be lower. Now, there are some measures, and it'll be in the chart pack, where the U.S. stock market is undervalued. It's undervalued the dividend yield, which is about 2%, relative to treasury bonds or the T-bills. Actually, this is short-term notes. With with T-bills yielding essentially zero. The dividend yield is higher than that. It's about 2%. Then when it's, when it's as cheap as it is now, the dividends relative to the T-bill, the stock market has returned 11% annualized. And so by measures relative to interest rates, the stock market appears undervalued. So what do we do about that? The U.S. stock market is attractive relative to low, very low interest rates, but it's expensive according to other measures. What we do is we just recognize the U.S. stock market, which makes up half the global stock market, is overvalued, and we just have less in it, and then we put more in other areas that are more attractively valued. Emerging markets is more attractively valued. Just non-U.S. stocks are more attractively valued than U.S. stocks. And then we have other asset classes. We can have real estate investment trusts, which are, are fairly valued. We can have master limited partnerships, which are attractively priced. We can invest in non-investment grade bonds. And all of them have unsafe components to it. Personal capital, a member, Justin, who's a member of the hub, sent me personal capitals, one of the robo-advisors, quarterly market overview. And they were, they were doing a, a piece within there is talking about how higher yielding strategies are are not safe. That and they show the maximum losses over the past 10 years for these strategies. And and REITs were down 30%, and non-investment grade bonds fell 40%, and, and MLPs fell 60%. And their point was don't get lulled in by the high yield assuming it's safe because they're risky. Now what the chart didn't show was that the, the, the period when REITs and non-investment grade stocks were falling 40%, then the the U.S. stock market was also falling 40%. And so that's why we have multiple drivers for a portfolio. 
And that's why when I invest, I, I want to understand what are the conditions? What are the valuations? Are we heading into a type of global recession, which suggests we should scale back risk? Are default rates increasing for bonds, which suggests we should modify our exposure in that way? And so we can't invest blindly. We, we, we just can't be overwhelmed, and we try to simplify it as much as possible by being primarily buy-and-hold investors and focusing on asset classes and don't spend our time trying to pick individual stocks to pick currencies or, or options or things of that sort. Focus on the long-term asset allocation. Focus on learning asset classes and what's going on there and, and set your plan and continue to learn. And that's how you get unstuck. You can get the show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's where you can sign up for my insider's guide, and I'll send you those valuation charts compiled by Ned Davis. There's eight charts there. Or, as I mentioned, text the word CHART, C-H-A-R-T-S, to the number 44222. That's charts, plural. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, one of the things I do is on a quarterly basis, I create expected returns for multiple different asset classes. There's over 20 asset classes there in terms of regional stock markets, etc. And there's tools, there's a spreadsheet you can use to help develop your target asset allocation, as well as there's some sample allocations there. What's an allocation that can earn a 4% return, a 5% return over the next 10 years, or a 6% return? These are all expectations Based on that building blocks approach, looking at dividend yields, looking at expected earnings growth, and looking at valuations. Earlier I mentioned I went through that analysis, those building blocks approach in episode five. It's actually episode 105 of the show. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, there's actually model portfolios with recommended ETFs you can use to implement some of these model allocations and, and the specific weights in the specific ETFs. You can get all that and learn more at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I don't ever provide investment advice anymore because I'm not a registered investment advisor. Even on the Hub, this is general education. It's me sharing it with all of you. Have a great week.